Well, turn with me, please, to Luke 22. Luke 22. I want to read verses 34, 24, rather, to 34. Luke 22, 24 through 34. Hear the Word of God. There was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you, is he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's ask for prayer upon the sermon. Lord God, rend the heavens and come down and visit this vine in this message. Speak to every heart and mind. Speak to the whole man, head, heart, and hands. And grant that we may benefit from this sermon. That we would understand, perhaps better than ever before, of the exquisite value and beauty and fullness of our Savior in His office bearing graces to us as prophet as priest, and as king. Help us in preaching. Help us in worshiping. Help us in receiving. Help us in being transformed. Save the lost. Mature the saints. Glorify thy name. And give glory to thyself in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some time ago, uh, a woman and her husband came to see me, and she asked the question, can I divorce my husband? And I said, well, what, has he been unfaithful? Well, no, but he doesn't meet all my needs. I said, well, there's no one who can meet all your needs except Jesus. And she looked surprised, and he looked relieved. Because you see, we can put too much emphasis 
even in marriage, too high of an expectation on one another. That a woman in my congregation who's now in glory, who was unsaved for many years under, under my ministry, and one day she said to her husband, she was upset he wasn't spending more time with her, and he said, well, what shall I do? And she said, well, just read, read something to me. And so he picked up a sermon booklet laying on the table and just began to read. And uh, she was saved while he read that sermon. She was convicted of sin and led to Christ under that sermon. Octavius Winslow, my times are in thy hands. And when the sermon was over, she looked at him and she said, all our married life, you have been number one. But now you're number two. And I'm going to be a better wife to you when you were number two than when you're number one, because now I won't put all the burdens of all my needs upon you, but I will find my greatest needs met in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to show you this morning how Jesus meets all the needs of all his people as office bearer, prophet, priest, and king. And I want to do that from this little vignette here in verses 31 and 32, where Jesus has this amazing testimony to Simon Peter. This is our text, 31, 32. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So our theme this morning, how Jesus meets all our needs. First, as prophetical admonisher. Second, as priestly intercessor. And third, as kingly commissioner. Now, Jesus, as he speaks to Peter here, had just completed instituting the Holy Supper. And the disciples had just completed arguing with each other about who was the greatest. So here's Jesus ready to go into the Garden of Gethsemane to suffer, agonize, crawl on the ground as a worm and no man, bleed, sweat great drops of blood, then go to Gabbatha, be bloodied again with a crown of thorns and the scourging on his back, and then carry the cross to Golgotha, nearly succumbing, and spending six long hours on the cross, suffering, agonizing, dying, crying out the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And these disciples, whom he had just explained to them about his coming death, for them in the sacred administration of the Lord's Supper, were arguing who was the greatest? Oh, how Jesus must have thought at that moment. How long must I suffer you? Instead, he's patient. He gives them a lesson on servanthood and authority. And then he turns to Simon Peter, who was standing tall, who felt he was the leader and he was kind of the unspoken leader. Did you know that all the listings of all four Gospels 
when the names of all the apostles are mentioned, Simon Peter's name is always first. There's something about him, you see. Something about him. And he was a natural leader. But Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, I've got something to warn you about. Satan wants to have you to sift you as wheat. What a surprising message. Jesus confronts his disciples with a hard and cruel reality of the temptation of the devil. These are hard words. The devil, he says, is ready to attack you. The devil wants you. The devil wants to destroy you. Jesus is coming, you see, with prophetical admonition, knowing what is in Satan's mind, knowing the weakness of his disciples, knowing he will soon be going into suffering. The shepherd will leave them and the sheep will be scattered. So he's warning Simon Peter, and by extension, all of the eleven, and they don't see a need for it. That's the tragedy. The frightening thing, you see, is the disciples did not see it. The comforting thing is that Jesus did. You see, Jesus foresaw that he is going to be smitten and that the devil would renew his energies and attack his own. And so he comes to the self-confident leader, Simon Peter, who sees no danger and says, Simon Peter, there is big danger here. Simon, Simon, behold. It's like a triple warning. Pay attention to me. When our kids were young, if I said to my son, Calvin, Calvin, if I said his name twice, he knew I meant business. And that was even more true in the Greek and Hebrew language and world. You see, this is really the third time Jesus does a double naming in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Martha, Martha. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now Simon, Simon. But this is the first time the word behold is added to it. And the word behold actually means pay special attention. So Simon, pay attention. Simon, pay attention. Behold, pay attention. It's a triple warning. Boys and girls, when your mom and dad warn you about something very earnestly, it's because they love you. It's not because they hate you. It's because they want to teach you something. Or they want to protect you. And they want to meet your needs. But you see, Jesus does this perfectly. He's the great prophet who teaches us also through warnings. Not the only way he teaches us, but it's the way that's highlighted here. Simon, Simon, behold. Now, when our children were young, we, we live on a very busy road and we have a long driveway and we, we drew a chalk, a thick chalk mark across the driveway about 50 feet from the road. Took each child to that chalk mark, got down on their knees, looked the child in the eye, eyeball to eyeball, and said, don't you ever, do you hear me? Do you hear me, my son? Do you hear me, my daughter? Don't you ever go across this chalk line. Because you'll go out in the road and you can die. 
You understand? And you see, if one of our children had gone across the chalk line, well, my wife had her eye on them. She would have, she would have caught them, I'm sure, before they reached the road. So why do we even bother to tell them? Well, precisely because the warning is a protective measure. And you see, that's the way Jesus deals with us. He's not going to forsake his people, but he warns us, and the warning is a means in itself to keep us in line. A prophetical, loving admonition. Simon, Simon, behold. Now, it's not just that Satan wants Simon Peter. There, of course, is a special way in which Satan wants church leaders. You understand that. If he can get the church leaders to fall, he can create havoc throughout the entire church. You see, Satan can no longer get at Jesus himself. Jesus is in heaven. He can no longer bite his heel. So his great goal is to do as much damage as he can in the midst of Jesus' flock, Jesus' people, Jesus' church, Jesus' bride, whom he loves. And so if he can get ministers to fall, he's got a real victory because of their past usefulness, their, their present potential, and their future value for the cause of God. But Satan really wants everyone. He wants your hearts, boys and girls. He doesn't want you to serve Jesus. And you young people, Oh, how does he want you? Because you're making life's major decisions right now. And he wants you. He doesn't want to release you into the kingdom of God. But you too, parents, in the midst of busyness of life. He, he wants you. He wants, to, he wants to cause you to backslide so you don't do that family worship every day. So that you don't lead your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So you turn away. And you seniors... Well, if you're not saved yet, he's almost got you forever, and he wants to keep it that way. So Satan wants all of us. We're, we're really a wanted people. Jesus wants us. Satan wants us. You're valuable. Your soul, your soul is more valuable than the entire world. Because this world is nothing compared to eternity, and your soul is destined to live forever and ever and ever and how you spend your one lifetime, your little tiny lifetime, even if you live to be a hundred years old, boys and girls, it's nothing compared to eternity. There was a Puritan once by the name of Thomas Watson, and he said, if you put all the sand in the entire world into a huge pile that went up into the heavens and stretched out thousands of miles, say, across all of America, and a bird came along, one every thousand years, every thousand years, and took one grain of sand in his beak and moved it to a new pile. And then a thousand years later, another grain, and then another, and then another. After all the entire sand pile was moved, after billions and trillions and zillions and way beyond that, years, eternity will just have begun. So what that means is, this tiny, tiny short life that's so small, you can hardly see daylight between my fingers, 
how we live it, how we are prepared to meet God when we die, determines our eternal, eternal, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever destiny. How utterly foolish to live for ourselves or to live apart from God in this world. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you. Now, what does Satan want to do with Simon? Well, he desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the word desire here in Greek is very intense. It's the strongest possible word. It means, actually, that Satan is not just asking for Simon Peter. He's begging. He's pleading. In fact, as one person translates it, he is putting in a claim for Simon Peter. And not only Simon Peter, actually, by extension, it's uh, you means all. You know, in the old language, the is singular and you is plural. So let me read the text again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. That's plural. That's all, all 11. That he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. That's personal. Simon Peter, especially. I'm singling you out. I'm praying for you here. See, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of God's grace. God, Jesus prays for his entire church, but he also prays for each one individually. What a beautiful and glorious thing that is. And so Jesus, you see, says, Satan wants to have you. Satan's putting in a claim, much like he did with Job, right? He came before God and said, you know, why is Job serving you? Job is serving you because of the benefits he gets. Take them away and Job will fall. That's what he's saying here. I've gotten Judas Iscariot now. I've gotten one of the, your lieutenants, Lord Jesus. I want to go for the colonel, the leader, Simon Peter. He's a sinner too. He's not worthy. I want to have him. I put in a claim for him. Simon Peter is a sinner. I want him. So he puts in a claim for you. He wants you. He desires to have you. When I was a boy... I don't know if how many of you remember this, but in the post offices of the United States, especially, there, every post office you go into, there was, a, there was a picture with Uncle Sam with his big hat and a bony finger sticking out of the picture. Uncle Sam wants you. And the idea was you sign up for the army, right? Well, Satan wants you to sign up for his army. He has a claim. He thinks he has a right to you because you're a sinner. And he knows God's a holy God. He was cast out of heaven because he was a sinner. He sinned against God. God didn't give him an opportunity of a way of salvation. God is holy and just. He knows that. He has a right to you. So he thinks. And what will he do with you once he gets you? Well, he'll sift you as wheat. What does that mean? Well, in Bible times, farmers had an instrument called a sieve. It had a wide bottom to it. 
and a thin handle, and they would scoop up a mixture from the threshing floor, shake it back and forth, and the dust and dirt would fall to the ground. And then they would, with their wrists, they would flick it up and down, and the straw and the chaff would come to the surface, and they would reach in and take out the straw and blow away the chaff, and the wheat would abide in the bottom of the sieve. But Satan's goal is that when that straw and chaff comes to the surface, that it would just stick there and choke the wheat in the bottom of the sieve so that the wheat is destroyed and you are lost. He wants to sift you as wheat. Now, Satan's sifting is indeed very dangerous. Very dangerous. That's what we experience when we're tempted by the devil. How frightening it is when old sins, which we thought we had subdued, even destroyed, are brought back to the surface again, and sometimes might even get the upper hand. It's frightening when evil, deeply embedded within us, overpowers us. It's frightening when we backslide and inch our way back to worldly thinking or even worldly actions. We fear then that we'll return to the world, return to our former life, that we'll be like Peter says, the dog that is turned back to his own vomit again and the soul to the, to, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. We fear in the end we'll be revealed as a hypocrite. That's a healthy fear, actually. That him that th think he standeth, fear lest he fall, the Bible says. And even some of the greatest saints didn't do too well in Satan's sieve, did they? I mean, look at Job. He started so well. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's given, he's taken away. But by chapter 3, he's cursing the day of his birth. Think of Jacob. All these things are against me, he said, when they were for him in God's providence. Think of Abraham. Sarah is my sister when he's in Satan's sieve. You see, when we're in Satan's sieve, it can be a sieve of affliction. It can be a sieve of prosperity. Worldly abundance can be a temptation too. It can be a sieve of deep trial that we think will never go away. We're prone not to stay the course. God says of his people in one of the prophets, my people are bent, bent. That means inclined to backsliding from me. Simon, Simon, behold. May I ask you and myself, what is your spiritual life like right now? Right now. This past week. Are you backsliding? Are you inching your way back to the world? Are you like Peter, ignoring, ignoring Jesus' warnings, his loving prophetical warnings? What a, what a calling this is to all of us. It's so easy to backslide. So easy to be like a dead fish being carried away downstream. Tough to be a living fish swimming upstream. But that's what God calls us to be. To deny Satan his wanted prey. 
And God will help us for that. Jesus warns us, but he'll help us at the same time. But we need to know, we need to know our frailty, our weakness. And we need to rely on him and cast ourselves upon him. Satan wants me. We ought to get up out of bed every morning and say, you know what? I'm in a spiritual warfare. The devil wants me today. He wants me to stumble. He wants to have me. But I, I am married to Christ. Satan, you've got no business having me. Like Martin Luther, when Satan would come to Martin Luther, you know what he'd say? He'd say, Satan, you're at the wrong address. My head who rules me, he's in heaven. <laughs> and you can't get at him. But in order to get at me, you have to get at him because he's in control of my life. Go to him, Satan, if you want me. Well, now, thanks be to God, our text doesn't end with verse 31, but it goes on to say in verse 32, but, these are one of these wonderful divine buts in the Bible, but I have prayed for thee. Satan wants to have you, but I, and it's emphatic in the Greek tense, I myself, I myself, who am mightier than Satan, I have prayed for thee. For thee, individually, Simon Peter, that thy faith, your faith, Peter, fail not. Wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. I always call the intercession of Jesus the, the greatest forgotten doctrine in the Bible. We talk a lot, and rightly so, about Jesus' death. We talk a lot about the double obedience of Jesus, meriting our salvation as a priest. Rightly so. It's important that you know that Jesus, through his passive obedience, his suffering obedience, paid for, for your sins. And that through his active obedience to the law, loving God above all, his neighbors himself, all 33 years of his life, he's your substitute for your moral infractions. And that through his perfect obedience, you have a right to eternal life. So that through that double obedience that is imputed to you, reckoned to your account, when you by grace put all your faith and trust in Jesus alone and surrender your entire life to him, that he becomes your total savior. That's, that's critical to know how you get saved through the double obedience of Jesus. But it's also critical that you know how you stay saved through him who sits at the Father's right hand and who intercedes for us, says the author to the Hebrews 7.25, ever living to make intercession for us. Ever living to make intercession for us. That's amazing. Because what that means is that Jesus intercedes for his whole bride, as it were. Every one of his members, his living members, millions upon millions. And yet, he intercedes for each one as an individual bride at every single second. Now, we men can only think of one thing at a time. You women can do probably two or three. But Jesus can think of a million things at once. He's infinite. 
How he does this, we don't know. But you see, the point is this. I'm praying for you, Peter, moment by moment by moment. Praying for you, dear believer, Jesus is. Every single second of your life. That's staggering. Because his prayers never go unanswered. All things, therefore, will work together for good to those that love God. So he meets our needs, not only as being, by being our teaching and admonishing prophet, but also by being our sacrificial and intercessory high priest. And he's got good grounds to be that for us. Better grounds to claim you than Satan. Because his sacrificial grounds, his double obedience, gives him the right to claim you. He's suffered for you. He's died for you. He's obeyed the law for you. He's done everything for you. He's imputed it to you. He's given you the faith to believe in him. All of salvation you owe to him. Both what he's done for you and what he's done within you. To him be all the glory. And now on top of all of that, he's keeping you every single second on the grounds of God's justice, because he went into the sieve himself. Satan's sieve himself. And suffered for you, and died for you, and bled for you, and cried the cry of dereliction for you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that you can be set free in Christ through faith. And so what he does as your intercessory priest, is he continues to grow you in exercising faith upon himself. And even as he prays that your faith will not die, he's not praying that your self-righteousness, your self-confidence, your self-expectation, your, 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 your self-promotion, your self Self, self, self won't die. He's only praying for one thing. Faith. That your faith won't die. Isn't that interesting? Why only faith? Why doesn't he say, well, that your love won't die, your hope won't die? Well, because Jesus has one object of faith, and that is himself. When you have true faith, faith's entire object is Jesus. Matthew Henry once commented, of all the graces in a believer's life, Christ honors faith the most because faith honors Christ the most. Faith is the engine behind which all the cars uh, of, of the train of your life are hooked of all the other graces, the grace of love and hope and humility and meekness and hungering after righteousness and awareness of your spiritual poverty and all of these graces and, and many other virtues that Peter mentions in 2 Peter 1. They're all hooked to the engine faith. Faith gets all the other graces running, said Thomas Watson. And so your faith cannot die. Your faith cannot die. Because Jesus will keep it alive, you see. 
No matter what Satan does, he will not get the victory. He will, Jesus will not allow the noble grace of faith to be destroyed. And so Jesus pleads on stronger grounds than Satan. He can come before the Father and say, Father, deliver this sinner from going down into the pit, for I am the ransom price. Satan has never merited your salvation. He can't claim it. He knows you're a sinner. He thinks he can have you because you're a sinner and God is holy. But what he doesn't reckon with, you see, is that the holiness and the justice of God are satisfied through the perfect double obedience of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus, who suffered and died for you to earn your salvation on Calvary, is now at the right hand of the Father to keep your salvation by continuing to pray for you that your faith will not die. He meets all your needs. And if you've been in hard places as I've been in my life, where you're overwhelmed by trials that you, you can't see the end of, and you don't know how to go forward, and you can scarcely pray, perhaps all you can cry out is, Lord, 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 Lord. Barely cry that. But you surrender the poverty of your prayers, the fickleness of your faith, the, the weakness of your life. You surrender it all into the hands of the living God, the living Savior. And you say, Lord Jesus, pray for me. Pray for me. When you come to the wit's end of your own prayers, He's there, my friend, praying for you. That your faith will not die. Not be eclipsed is actually the original Greek word here. Think of a, the eclipse of the sun or the eclipse of the moon. It's, it gets blotted out, you see. Jesus is saying, I'm praying that your faith will not die, will not be blotted out, will not be invisible, will not be hidden behind the clouds of darkness and trial, hidden in it while you're in Satan's sin, but that your faith will come alive, that your faith will come into action, that your faith will be kept, that your faith won't be overturned. Yes, Satan's desire is to overturn your faith, to choke the wheat. But you see, Jesus is his father's servant, his father's farmhand, if you'll allow me that expression, who comes in and with his holy high priestly hands, he lays hold of the straw and he removes it. And with the powerful words of his mouth, he blows away the chaff and the wheat abides in the bottom of the sit. So he actually overturns the very devices of Satan. Calvin puts it so well. Calvin says, God uses Satan to be a physician for us. Ever thought about that? See, everything Satan does to destroy you, God overturns it and uses it to mature you. Where would you be without any trials in your life, without any satanic sent trials in your life? You'd be spoiled. You'd be a spoiled brat. And so would I. Because everything would always, you, you'd always insist everything goes your way. Like a little child, two-year-old. Give me what I want all the time. No, as you grow up, and you mature and you grow into spiritual adulthood, what happens to you? God brings you through this trial and through that trial. And it's like 
Christian life sometimes is a series of trials. But he brings you through. And what happens when you break out of that tunnel into the sunshine of, of God's grace? Again, your faith isn't weaker. Your faith is what? Stronger. Stronger. Yeah. Boys and girls, when I was nine years old, I had a wonderful trip with my dad. We went from Michigan all the way to New Jersey to pick up my grandfather. He was coming across the ocean on a boat. And uh, we went through the Appalachian Mountains. I'd never seen mountains in my life. And uh, we went into these, this tunnel under the mountain. And the tunnel just kept going, and I started feeling kind of queasy in the tunnel. I said to my dad, is this tunnel ever going to end? And my dad said, oh yeah, don't worry, don't worry. You're going to see a little speck of light at the end of the tunnel very soon now. And then it's going to get bigger and bigger as we get close to the opening. And then we're going to break out in the sunshine. You'll appreciate the sunshine more than ever before. It's exactly what happened. And five minutes later, we were in another tunnel. And then another. And I think there are nine of them. And you see, that's how God often leads his people. From tunnel to tunnel. And in the tunnel of darkness, when we trust him, when our faith is exercised, when we can't see the light, we honor him more than when we're in the sunshine of his mercy. And he grows us. He grows us. And to whom do we give the credit? He intercedes for me. That my faith fail not. <laughs> I couldn't keep my faith alive myself. It's his Holy Spirit. He sends into me, to indwell me, to keep that faith alive. That faith cannot die because it's planted a right noble seed by my Savior himself within me. So yes, Peter, a lot of you is going to die. Your self-confidence is going to die, Peter. Your fleshly expectation of an earthly kingdom is going to die, Peter. Your fleshly holiness is going to die. Your fleshly pride is going to die. Your fleshly strength is going to die. Your fleshly wisdom is going to die. Your fleshly reputation is going to die. Your fleshly prayer is going to die. But my faith planted in you will not die. I will meet every need you have. And so that faith which cleaves and clings to me, that faith which cannot beloved God, that faith which hangs upon me and, and, and God's promises, my Father's promises of me, that faith which clings to God's Word is seemingly the lowest of all graces, but in reality is the most active and chiefest grace of all. That faith cannot die even when the winds blow and the storm rages and the waves roar around the ark of Noah so the storms of a tempting devil will arise against the ship of the church, but faith will not die. That's why our fathers called faith, and the exercise of faith, the militant church, the military church here on earth, in order to bring us one day to the triumphant church in glory forever. You see, Jesus will meet our every need in this spiritual military warfare here as we walk through Vanity Fair and his faith in us will never die. There's a wonderful text in Amos 9 verse 9 that runs like this. For lo, I will command and I will sift, I will sift, not Satan here, the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve and then get this, 
yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Not the smallest kernel of wheat in the bottom of that sieve shall fall and be lost. Not one child of God shall be lost. Not one chair in heaven will be empty. Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. How can Jesus say that? Because he's almighty. Because he keeps faith alive. When I have tried thee, thou shalt come forth as gold. Job 23, verse 10. He meets all our needs. As admonishing teaching prophet, as sacrificial intercessory, blessing high priest, but also as guiding, ruling, commissioning king. Look at the end of our text. When thou art converted, better translated here, when thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. Strengthen thy brethren. Peter had to repent. He was going to deny Jesus three times. That's a terrible thing to do, to say about your Savior, I don't know him. But it's a king. It's a king who commands his repentance. Do you notice here, the text does not say, if thou art repentant. Peter, I'm standing by, waiting for you to repent. I'm helpless. It all depends on you, Peter. No, no, no. I'm a king who meets all your needs. I have authority where I speak with authority. I command and I do. And it stands firm. When you repent. I'll see to it, Peter, that you'll repent. And Jesus did. You know the story, boys and girls, right? Peter's washing his hands. Hall Caiaphas. People are asking him, yeah, you, you were with him. You were with him. No, no, no. I don't know the man. And he starts to swear. And he starts to curse even. Terrible. And then he looks up. Just at that moment, Jesus is walking by. Down the hallway. Jesus walks across. And he gives Peter one look. One look. And what happens to Peter? I have denied my Lord. And he's overwhelmed. The God of his salvation. He's betrayed him. And he goes out and weeps. Bitterly. He's sobbing. He's groaning. He's repentant. I have a brother with 13 children and uh, 57 grandchildren, 20-some great-grandchildren, and there's always four or five in the family pregnant from two generations. It's endless. <laughs> but my sister-in-law is amazing. It's amazing. These 13 children are all married. As far as I know, they're all solid Christians with all solid Christian spouses. It's a beautiful family. My wife and I have often talked about what, what does she do it keeps those kids so, so well in line. And uh, there's just two things that stand out to us. One is, she loves those kids so much. It's so tangible. Even some of the big kids would just come and sit on her lap and she'd rub their backs. And, I mean, she's just so affectionate, loving. But boy, is she tough. That's the second thing. Her eyes... Her eyes can speak love. Her eyes can speak, don't you dare. 
And with her eyes, she controls her children. It's amazing. I saw it once myself sitting in the living room, and the boy about, oh, I don't know, eight, nine years old, I suppose, he's, he's reaching for a cookie, a big, big platter of cookies in the middle of the dining room table. And he knows he shouldn't take it at five to five just before supper. His mom's in the kitchen already making supper. He's old enough to know that. So he's very sneaky. His mom is in the kitchen, and she's got her back to, to him. So he thinks he can get away with it. And he's reaching for a cookie. And of course, boys and girls, you know your mom has eyes in the back of her head. Did you know that? She can see you. And she turned around. She saw him. She just, she just looked at him. And he just pulled his hand back quietly, got off the chair, walked away. Neither one ever said a word to each other. Just one look, one look. See, one look. But this was a look of incomparable, divine love. It made Peter weep bitterly. You know, there's nothing like love to bring you to repentance. Boys and girls, if your dad gets a ticket going down the highway, I don't think he's going to say to the policeman, I'm, I just got to weep now because I'm so sorry I've offended you. I, you know, I love you so much and I just so sorry. No. But if he did something bad against your mom or you did something bad against your mom, you'd cry, wouldn't you? Because you love her. You love her. See, when you're loved and you sin against love, that breaks your heart. Peter repented. But Jesus is so loving. He says, when you repent, you go out then and you strengthen your brethren. See, Peter, when you're standing tall, when you're standing as the number one apostle who, in verse 33, don't worry about me, Lord. I'll follow you into prison and to death. I won't fall. No, no, I can't use you then, Peter. A.W. Tozer said, God will usually use people only when he breaks them deeply so he can use them greatly. God breaks us to use us. God brings us to repentance to make us fruitful. If Peter hadn't been broken, he would have beat up the little sheep in God's flock. But now he says, I'm, I'm a great sinner. He reaches out to the little ones. Isn't that what he did in his beautiful two epistles? He says, the very first thing he says in 1 Peter is, we are kept by the power of faith unto salvation. Who taught him that? Jesus, right here. This text. In his fall, in his restoration. He goes out and he strengthens the church through his two epistles. Who was it that stood up on the day of Pentecost only, only seven, eight, nine weeks or so after he denied he knew Jesus? And the multitude was saying, you are all drunk, you apostles. Did he say then, oh, well, you know, really, I'm so sorry, but I don't really know Jesus. No, he stood up and he preached a sermon and 3,000 people were converted. He strengthened the brethren. Who was the leader with the Apostle Paul all throughout the book of Acts? Actually bringing the church over into Gentile territories and spreading the gospel among the Gentile nations. It was Simon Peter together with Paul. 
Strengthen my brethren. I can't use you, Peter, when you're standing tall in yourself. But I can use you when you've been broken and repentant. And you come back to me. You see, Jesus meets all our needs as prophet, as priest, and as king to form us to be the kind of people he wants us to be so that we can go out and be prophets, priests, and kings for him. And that's what life is all about after all. I was 16 years old when my, I have another brother who was 19, three years older than me. And uh, he came into my bedroom one day and he said, you know, I know what life is all about and I can say it in one word. I said, one word? What's that? He said, service. I said, service? Explain. Well, he said, we were created in paradise to serve. To serve God above all. Adam was created to serve Eve. And Eve, Adam. And serve cre creation. We were to dress the garden and keep it. Our whole design of creation. The whole purpose God made us was to function in a life of service for the, for the glory of God. And then when we fell, my brother said to me, we lost all of that. We were no longer in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, or you could translate that prophet, priest, king. So we lost being God's prophet, priest, and king, and we became selfish, which is the surest way to unhappiness and to hell. To live a selfish life. Because that's not, how, that's not what God made you for. It's not what God made you for. So he said, when we get born again, then we get divine love in us again. And we want to serve. We, want, we get satisfaction then out of serving God, serving our neighbor, and serving creation. And so that's what life is all about. We get restored to the purpose for which we are created. To serve God. So that we actually live for the purpose for which we were made. And I remember saying to him, you know, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good to me. But 50 years later, it sounds very good to me. What gives you real joy in life? Living for yourself? <laughs> no one ever found happiness by living for himself. What gives you real joy is when you serve God and you serve your neighbor and you serve each other and you love each other. You get richer the more love you give away. You know, I was 13 years old when my dad took me, he was a carpenter, he took me on the job for the first time. The first day, he had some nails and a, and a hammer and a, a board there and a saw. And he said, son, he said, I want to tell you something. He said, never take this saw and try to nail home a nail and never take the hammer and try to saw a board because they're not designed for that. And I go, yeah, dad, I know that. Yeah, he said, but do you know why I'm telling you? And I go, no. I never understood my dad's spiritual. I always, I always got the wrong answer, so I always said no when he <laughs> asked me spiritual questions. He said, well, life is like this, he said. If you try to live for any other purpose than God's glory and serving others in life, you're trying to saw a board with a hammer. You're trying to nail home a nail with a saw. It won't work. There's only one way to live and one way to die. It's in Christ. Living a life of service out of gratitude to Him for His salvation. You see, Jesus as King teaches us that. 
so that we go out and strengthen our brethren and we become little prophets, priests, and kings living out of his prophetical, priestly, and kingly office. That's the way to live. And he will meet all our needs in this wonderful way. So how are you doing? What kind of life are you living right now? Are you living as prophet, priest, and king for God? Are you fleeing every day to the intercessor to find your life in Jesus and then living out of him, seeking to proclaim him as a prophet to others, seeking to intercede for others in prayer as a priest, seeking to guide others in biblical ways as a king, or are you just living for yourself? If you're just living for yourself, you're on your way to hell. You're missing the purpose for why you were made. Don't do that. Don't destroy yourself. Turn to the living God. Repent and believe the gospel. Let me, let me close this sermon with, with just this quick illustration. There was once a very famous chess champion. And... Uh, he was traveling through European art museums and he came across a painting of two players playing a game of chess. And one was dressed up with uh, horns on and obviously was the devil. And the other was a young man who was biting his nails. And Satan was moving his own queen over into position to checkmate, so it seemed, the young man. And the title of the painting was Checkmate. And the chess champion was fascinated by that, so he, he studied the painting for a while. And all of a sudden, he shouted out, No, young man, there's a move you can make, and you can checkmate Satan. Then he looked around, and he thought, this is, this is foolish. Nope, nope. I mean... They can't hear me. But my friend, you young people, please listen to me right now. You can hear me. You're alive. And I want to say to you, you live in a very tempting world, but there's a way you can checkmate Satan. And that is by repenting of your sin, coming clean before God and man, throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and receiving this Savior for your life, for your purpose, for your service, for your joy, for, for salvation, for real meaning in life. You can be popular. You can get straight-A grades. You can, you can have everything going for you. You can be brilliant in every way. You can have great personality skill. You can be handsome or beautiful, but if you don't have Christ, Charles Spurgeon would say this to you, all you've got is a casket on your back and you'll soon have grave dust in your mouth. You've got nothing if you're not prepared to meet God. You've got nothing if you don't have Jesus. You need Jesus Christ. And the good news, he can meet all your needs. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for the gospel. We thank thee for Jesus Christ, 
We thank Thee for His prophetical admonitions, His priestly intercessions, His kingly commission. And we pray that we may come under these things and love them and embrace them and embrace Him and cry out, cry out, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, please, please save the lost in our gathering this morning and mature thy people and help us to live for thy glory and help us all to find all that we need for this life and a better one to come in the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.